Subscribe to this podcast through your favourite provider and make sure you get it when it's released at 4pm. From the Evening Standard in London, this is The Leader. Hi, I'm David Marsland. Lynn Barber's interviewed Jeremy Corbyn for the ES magazine. What did she make of the man who would be PM? I didn't think he expected to be moving into number 10 next month, as it were. And he said that his wife was worried about whether the cat would be happy. We spent the morning with the legendary interviewer and you can read her piece on Mr Corbyn in ES magazine or on standard.co.uk. Also, the Prince was has a vigour and energy to protect the monarchy going forward and will do what he has to do to make sure that that is the case. Our royal editor, Robert Jobson, on Prince Andrew's withdrawal from public duties as we reveal Charles advised the Queen she had to sack her second son. Taken from the Evening Standard's editorial column, this is the leader. For the whole thing, pick up the newspaper or head to standard.co.uk slash comment. In a moment, Lynn Barber on Jeremy Corbyn. This edition of The Standard is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharma Dean Reid, founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year, thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June, 2024. Good luck. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Labour launched their Manifesto for Hope with promises of big spending and ideas they say are so revolutionary Jeremy Corbyn thinks his opponents will tell you it can't be done. Over the next three weeks, they're going to tell you that everything in this manifesto is impossible. That it's too much for you. Because they do not want real change in this country. Why would they? The system is working just fine for them. It's rigged in their favour. But it's not working for you! But our editorial column says Labour's vision isn't as new as they might have you think. What have Margaret Thatcher, Tony Blair, John Major and Jeremy Corbyn got in common? Answer, they've all been keen on windfall taxes. Here's another question. Who first contemplated seizing control of BT's broadband assets? 
Answer, David Cameron. Other quickfire questions. Who jacked up capital gains tax to 40%? Nigel Lawson. When was the last time the top rate of income tax was 50%? Just six years ago. It's a reminder that the actual proposals unveiled by Labour today are not as outlandish as the Tories claim, nor as radical as the Corbynistas would have us believe. That's not to say that the economy would be safe in Labour's hands. Far from it. Dig a little deeper into the world view of these neo-Marxists and it's clear that by the end of a Labour government, we could see the Bank of England stripped of its independence, capital controls introduced, a wealth tax and a swathe of the economy renationalised. The hard-left leadership of Labour is trying to reassure voters that its bite is not as bad as its bark. Read our exclusive interview with Mr Corbyn in today's ES magazine, and he wants you to know he sits at home making coddled eggs and listening to Classic FM. Don't be fooled. He's cooking up a far more dangerous meal for Britain. That interview was conducted by Lynn Barber, and I popped round her house this morning to find out what she thought of Jeremy Corbyn. Lynn, one of the things that struck me about this interview is a line from you, not from Jeremy Corbyn himself, and it's where you say that you believe he doesn't seem to want or expect to be Prime Minister. Why did you think that? Um, I didn't actually say not expect ever, but I said I didn't expect him to be... I didn't think he expected to be moving into number 10 next month, as it were. And he said that his wife was worried about whether the cat would be happy. And I said, well, I bet Boris didn't bloody worry about whether the cat would be happy, <laughs> you know. And that if if you're sort of really raring to go for something, I don't think you worry. Too. I have a cat that I'm very fond of, you know. But, uh, I, think I can I see can, it right there, actually. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Hello. Uh, and uh, perhaps part of the trouble with him is that he's so good in his constituency and such a good constituency MP, I'm not sure that he can make that big leap to being leader of the country. Uh, but anyway, we'll see. But he does seem to suggest that his wife, although worried about the cat, is very interested in moving to Downing Street. Yes, well, perhaps you'll have a cleaner there, because one of the shocking things, you know, he said that they don't have cleaner. Um, they have people that help. That's slightly ambiguous. That's interesting, isn't it? Because as you point out, he said that having a clean, he previously said having a cleaner is a bourgeois thing Comfort. to do. But there's yeah. that kind of wriggle room in there, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. I mean, with Boris, you always felt he was sort of counting the days till he could move into number 10. Um, you've interviewed Boris before, as you say, yes, in yes. the article. What were the striking differences between the two of them? Actually, I interviewed Boris twice. And the first time was when he was still editor of The Spectator or something. And I was totally charmed by him. And I'm quite embarrassed to read my piece now about how charmed I was. Um, and then I interviewed him later when he was mayor of London when I know there'd been various things like the Petronella Wyatt affair and one thing or another, and I thought, oh, don't sort of totally believe every word he says this time. This thing of relying on charm is not enough, you know, as a Prime Minister. But doesn't Jeremy Corbyn have a kind of charm himself? Yes, he does, actually. Um, actually, I wouldn't quite say charm, but, I mean, he's very likeable. He seems very decent. 
he was very affable and actually that was slightly a problem in interviewing him because I only had a limited time slot I had now. He, he's very keen to sort of go into little excursions and tell me about manhole covers or tell me about the war memorial in Manor Gardens, all of which if I just met him socially would I'd be very interested, but I was sort of conscious of the clock, clock ticking down, you know. A lot of the piece, he seems to be, like you say, affable, having yeah. to talk about things. And then it's almost like there's a switch that's flicked when you bring up anti-Semitism. Yes, and I was shocked that he seemed to think, you know, I said, well, now we've got to tackle the big blot, black mark against your anti-Semitism. And his immediate response was, A, stop being affable, so it become almost shouty, you know, and saying, I'm not anti-Semitic, I don't have an ounce of risk. And you seem to think that just by keep saying that, you know, if I say it three times, it's true, that, that it made it true. And so I, you know, asked about the mural, that terrible Nazi mural of hook-nosed bankers that was really shocking and the fact that the Jewish Chronicle has said that half of Britain's Jews would contemplate emigrating if Corbyn came to power I mean that's a terrible indictment um, you know if Margaret Hodge says the party is anti-semitic that's good enough for me you know because she is labor you know to her fingertips and she's Jewish, and if she feels it, then it is, you know. And it, he just seemed terribly dismissive, as if it wasn't important. But, I mean, it's incredibly important, I think. Do you think dismissive or in denial? Well, yes, actually. Well, I think if he, he thinks that if he... Poss and possibly because we've been getting on so friendlyly before, he just thought if he put on a cross face and said, I am not anti-Semitic, I'd shut up, you know, but... I won't. And also, I slightly suspect he does, he, his origins were as a union negotiator. And he slightly has that feeling of, you know, you go to the rule book and you take all these proper procedures and you have an inquiry and you have a committee and you have another committee. And I think if you're a prime minister, you've got to be a bit more decisive than that. After the interview, whenever I do an interview with anybody, I always think, oh, I didn't ask that question. Or I wish I'd learned more oh, about yeah. that. Were there any areas you thought maybe there, there, there was more there? Oh, almost everything, actually, you know. And I, I, I would have liked to ask more about his childhood. And uh, apparently his parents were quite political and they talked politics at home. I did ask a, quite a good question about how he managed to fail his A-level so spectacularly. I actually got two E's. Apparently that's not a failure exactly, but it's the lowest it's the lowest. You lowest can do. pass. Yeah. And he came out again with a an answer that I you know, he believed in the university of life. I also slightly wonder about whether he's well, intellect intellectually up to the job or whether I mean whether he can sort of cope with the enormous input of information that if he becomes Prime Minister, he's got to sort of somehow step up in character, become a bigger sort of person, possibly a brusker sort of person, you know, a more decisive and leader-like person. Um, and at the moment, he seems to be happy to retreat into this sort of... Labor. I know Labour Party is supposed to be whatever it is, cooperative or something. <laughs> but actually a leader has to just say yes or no, don't they? 
and you can read Lynn Barber's interview with Jeremy Corbyn in ES Magazine or online. Next. Something decisive had to happen. There's no anger here. There's no necessary repercussions personally, but the safeguarding of the, the monarchy... Um, and the future of the monarchy is um, more important. As Prince Andrew steps back from public life, our royal editor Robert Jobson on the standards exclusive that it was Prince Charles who ended his brother's career. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Evening Standards learned the Prince of Wales advised the Queen she had to effectively sack Prince Andrew to safeguard the monarchy. The Duke of York's announced he's stepping down from public duties for the foreseeable future after the damage caused by his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein. Our editorial column says the right decision has been made. At last, Prince Andrew now says his friendship with the convicted child sex offender Jeffrey Epstein was ill-judged. It's a move towards undoing the harm caused by his Newsnight interview. But even this may not prevent prosecutors in the US from requiring him to give evidence. For the women abused by Epstein, this is at least a step forward. For the prince, it is a humiliation. For the institution of which he is part, it is a severe test. It is one it can survive. The monarchy is bigger than one of its now relatively unimportant members. It has a rooted place in our constitution. Whatever happens next in the story of Prince Andrew, it will not be the whole story of the monarchy. Prince Charles's effective and traditional tour of New Zealand, which is now underway, is another part of it too. Our royal editor, Robert Jobson, is in New Zealand following Prince Charles and Camilla on their tour there. Robert, Charles is a long way away from the UK. Why did he intervene in this? I think what's important for the Prince of Wales is simply to continue to do his job, uh, to continue to support the Queen and advise the Queen in the best way possible. And I think what's happened um, over the um, last 48 hours or so shows that... um, that they both have, uh, well, the Prince of Wales has a, a vigour, uh, an energy to protect the the monarchy going forward um, and will do what he has to do to make sure that that is the case. And, of course, it's all done with a consultation of the boss, the Queen, who will regard the Prince of Wales as, her ne- as the man who will follow her as, as the next king, as his advice is paramount. Given the outcry, Prince Andrew didn't have much of a choice, did he? Well, David, I don't think the Duke of York had any choice whatsoever, really, but to step down, fall on his sword, and call it whatever you like. The reality is, I think there would have been both pressure, not only from the media and the public, but from within the royal family too, to protect the institution of monarchy. The reality is this is seen as a car crash interview. It's seen as a disaster in terms of PR. And it was beginning to impact upon... Um, the institution of monarchy that has to remain outside of politics. Questions were being asked of the uh, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and the leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, and the, and the fact that it's come in the middle of an election doesn't help. And so I think that really something decisive had to happen. There's no anger here. There's no uh, necessarily repercussions personally, but 
personalities are not really the issue here. The safeguarding of the, the monarchy um, and the future of the monarchy is um, more important. And I think that's what's gone on. Are the royal family blaming him or the PR team for what's happened? Look, it's easy, isn't it, to blame other people for the principal's mistakes. I mean, people are talking about bad advice, bad PR, um, you know, and, and I think, in my opinion, unfairly attacking aides close to the Duke. Ultimately, the Duke will make the decision based upon what he thinks is best for him. And my understanding was when he initially did the um, interview that he was quite pleased with the way it went. He was quite pleased that he could uh, have got his what he thought was his point of view across, that he he was able to um, uh, at least put some of his st- side of the story. Um, and I think he thought it went OK, even he, and was quite shocked at the vitriol and the attacks of him. Sometimes it's difficult when, you know, you don't really look from the outside in, do you? He he would have probably thought that he had answered the questions honestly and fairly, but as it came across, a lot of people didn't. Um, he's not an expert on TV. He's not somebody that has given that many interviews. Um, and therefore, <laughs> I think the impression that uh, he would have had or the impression that people around him would have had is, is completely different to where it appeared on television. And that's the leader. Subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode and get it when it's released at 4pm. And you can also get our audio bulletins delivered to smart speakers at 7am every weekday. Just ask for the news from the Evening Standard. We're back tomorrow.